1: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and welcome to Naked Reflections. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back always ineffectiveness. The moment one definitely commits oneself then providence moves too. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising in one's favour all manner of unforeseen incidents and even material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have been possible. Boldness has genius, power and magic in it. That veritable call to arms comes from the great German poet Goethe Born into a German nobility and blessed with a huge dose of literary genius, it's perhaps not surprising he believed in the power of positive thinking. He would say that, wouldn't he? Is a tempting response, but that would be too negative. We're talking about good luck this week. Whether positive thinking can create its own momentum, or to put it another way, whether negativity reaps its own bad harvest. We found a striking example of positive thinking in the naked scientist show fire and mud. The biologist Sarah Salon came across a 2,000-year-old seed hidden in some archaeological remains and set about trying to help it germinate. Well, I never do things that I don't think there's any hope. (laughs) If I didn't think there
2: was any hope, I wouldn't have done it. I was so optimistically thinking that there could be. And there had been other stories in the literature from China of a thirteen hundred year old lotus seed, seeds from the natural history museum that germinated after during the Second World War when there was an incendiary bomb and water was used a lot of water was used to put them out and some seeds in the natural history museum germinated in this period.
1: With me to discuss good luck or the lack of it are Dr Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director here at the Wolf Institute, a scholar of pre-modern Jewish Christian Muslim relations and Fellow of St Edmund's College, Cambridge. And with Miriam is Robert Toombs, Professor Emeritus of French History at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of St John's College, Editor of History Reclaimed, which challenges the tendency towards censorship in some university curricula. If Sarah Salon had not had hope that the Methuselah seeding might sprout, she wouldn't have done the experiment and the discovery would not have been made. Is that an example of what we're talking about, Miriam?
2: Ed, when you speak or when you give presentations, you always start with a joke. So I want to start with a joke as well. I hope I haven't pinched that one thing. you. No, go for it. (laughs) So there's a religious man who feels down on his luck and he prays to God every night. And he says, I really, really want to win the lottery. Please, God, let me win the lottery. And he doesn't win the lottery and he keeps on praying and he keeps on asking, please, God, let me win the lottery. And he just, there's no luck, he doesn't win. And one day he really feels down on his luck and he says, please, God, please, I beg you, please let me win the lottery. And then there's a voice from above and says, meet me halfway, buy a lottery ticket. (laughs) So I think it demonstrates the theory that lucky people generate luck through noticing and creating opportunities people who can be classified as lucky tend to be more resilient as well so even when bad luck happens to them they are able to transform it into good luck and um there's always the self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, of positive expectation so i think all these things come together uh, in lucky people
1: lucky people create their own luck robert
3: they do I think. And can I start with a joke too, which is my favorite lucky joke? I think it was Frederick the Great, or some of your listeners may say it was Napoleon, who uh, on parade one day pinned a medal on the wrong general. And uh, one of his aides said to him, Your Majesty, that wasn't the man who was supposed to get the medal. And Frederick the Great answered, Never mind, I like lucky generals. <laughs> so luck is yes, it's about being in the right place at the right time, I think, and taking opportunities. It's often bold. But I sometimes wonder, or at least I, I admit I hadn't wondered till this podcast whether luck is something that we impose retrospectively on events I'm not sure I can avoid this awful example, but I have been thinking about people in concentration camps, death camps, and you read about the survivors, and often you think how lucky they were because they were the one person out of a thousand who survived and Sometimes it's because they took a chance. You know, some SS man says, who can repair boots here? And so someone sticks his hand up and says, me. And we think, gosh, wasn't that brilliant? So he couldn't really repair boots, but he said he could, and he somehow managed and he survived. But of course, we don't know about the people who said, I can repair boots, and then immediately got shot. So is luck what we later recognize as such? People who take chances, people who take risks, we know about the ones who succeed. Perhaps we tend to forget about the ones whose choice is disastrous. And so we we tend to think about luck when maybe it's just blind and random chance.
2: There are studies that... Conduct experiments where we have lucky and unlucky people self-described. And then they look at the people who describe themselves as lucky. And they tend to be more extrovert. They smile more. They're more able to engage with others. And that creates, again, more opportunity. I mean, your example of a, of a concentration camp is quite extreme. But um, I think we all know people who we at least have the impression that fate smiles upon them, right? They keep on winning the lottery. Whenever they happen to go buy a TV show, they win something good things continually happen to them but at the same time I always have the impression as well that these people also tend to be very positive towards others they're more gracious they're more outgoing and rewarding others with you know with presence with uh, invitations to dinner things like that
3: well you can make your own luck then and I think you can also make your own bad luck by the same criteria if you're a withdrawn person a pessimist you won't take the chances you'll you'll stand back you'll hesitate and so on I'm sure you're right about that but going back to my example we know about the people who succeed we don't know about the people who failed Uh, and although you might say well it's luck if you're an outgoing person you have a certain amount of charm you're willing to do things that other people want and therefore you're often given opportunities is that really luck or is that not a consequence of a certain kind of personality which we might think is lucky. Well, it could be a positive or it could even be a negative. You know, the people with the sharpest elbows may also <laughs> appear to be lucky. The people yeah. who are not very scrupulous may also seem to be lucky. The ones who shove the others out of the way are also lucky. I think sometimes you can perceive
1: that someone's lucky, but actually that's not necessarily how they perceive it. So, for example, you mentioned the concentration camps, and I know uh, of a number of survivors who survive but then commit suicide. They, they couldn't cope with the fact they were lucky that, that, that they survived. So sometimes what we perceive to be good luck actually is not felt by that particular person. You know, and there's also an element of revisionism about it. You know, we create a myth, don't we, about good luck. And we can think of, you know, the famous quote that you gave about lucky generals. Um, but there's a danger of revisionism, which I think picks up on some of your work in terms of the question of what's appropriate, what's not. And this history
3: reclaimed exercise. Something else I was thinking about, does being a historian tend to make you optimistic or pessimistic? And I think, um, at least for me, it it perhaps tends to make me optimistic, at least in the sense that um, I don't believe there was some golden age in the past that we've now lost, which I think is a fairly common belief
2: general declinism right the fact that historians don't tend to believe in declinism so when people believe that you know it's this golden age idea the idea that uh, there was a good time in the past and now we're living sort of in this long era of decline people saying you know 50s and 60s was a golden age everyone was happy there was great economic prosperity and ever since we're now in a long phase of decline i mean people sort of put their golden age on on various sort mm-hmm. of pin them on various eras i think
1: I mean, if you're talking about optimism, I have to share a joke with the listeners because I feel under pressure. (laughs) (laughs) This is my, my contribution to the humor of this podcast. And that's about optimism and pessimism. And it's about, um, three friends who meet every afternoon for coffee in Jerusalem. And they look around them. They decide they're three pessimists. You know, the world's a mess. The economy's in decline. There's trouble. There's violence. There's fighting. There's conflict. And one day one of them turns around to the other two and says, you know what? I've converted. I said, what do you mean? You've converted. He said, I've become an optimist. <laughs> and they say, how can you be an optimist with all of this, uh, all this trouble around us and everything seems so bleak? And he said, well, we're all friends. You have to accept me for who I am. I'm an optimist now. And so they do. And a few minutes later, one of the friends looks at this newly converted optimist and said, you look so worried. You've got these wrinkles. You've got you've these frowns. And he turned around and said, you think it's easy to be an optimist? <laughs> And I, I think there's something to that, because good jokes, and listeners, you've had three. They, they tell a story. They, they have a meaning. And here, there is this question about it's not easy to be the recipient of bad luck. It's not easy to be the recipient of good luck. And when humans come into it, of course, mathematicians who specialize in probability theory start by looking at the 50-50 outcome of, of uh, tossing a coin, right? It seems obvious. It's just 50-50. But when humans get involved, the odds seem to change, don't they? And that's what we bring to it, that subjectivity, don't we?
2: I remember 10 years ago, I read the study They had the optimists and the pessimists and the optimists actually performed better in dice. So they had like a better outcome in the way they dice. I have not been able to find this. So maybe this has been actually...
1: Well, listeners, if you can find that piece of research, we would love to hear it. We're, it's very bad that academics quote a piece of research you know, uh, yeah, and then uh, don't know where it comes from. I think research funded by casino owners. <laughs>
3: yes, <perhaps>. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Are we saying that looking on the bright side is delusional? Can I... Evade the question and say it may be necessary for us to look on the bright side, even if it's not all that bright. Otherwise, the alternative is, is a kind of despair and a generalised pessimism. I think one can see the results of collective pessimism, um, and they're not and they're not nice. I would say two present-day examples are, are Russia and America, both countries in a sense, are, you, you know, you might say they really are in decline. They're not as powerful or as uh, as, as respected as they once were. And yet this feeling of, of collective pessimism brings to power people who are not the sort of people that we would think are going to change things for the good. So you have Putin in Russia, you, have, you, you, you had Trump, you may have Trump again in America. So there's all this desperate sense that things are bad and are getting worse, and only some extreme measure, some sort of saviour figure can come along and do anything about it. And I think that's very dangerous. I think I probably have a tendency towards complacency rather than optimism and thinking that things are not really so bad and that, you know, they're not worse than they were in the past.
2: Can I add to that Russia-American example? So I grew up in East Germany and I lived next to a Russian barracks. And we know all about the differences between army structures a really great platoon structure in America and uh, the very, very uh, sort of bizarre hierarchies in the Russian army. But it's also the song. So every evening the soldiers would sing songs and they would be the saddest most sort of hard rendering songs that would would make you despair. And then you look at the American army movies and you see the songs that they sing there and they're optimistic. You know, it's all in major. Everything's happy. You know, it's all about, you know, getting the girl or, you know, sort of making fun of someone. But um, the Russian army songs are sad songs.
3: We we have a liking for sad music, don't we? That's not um, too far away from the subject. Uh, I think we, we get rather tired of jolly music. In all sorts of musical genres, sad music has something really... Um, appealing. I think some people say it's because it it gives you a, a harmless psychological, um, a boost isn't the word, but you know, it enables you to feel emotions that you don't actually suffer from, but you are experiencing them vicariously through music, and that's perhaps a good thing. Birum, I wonder if
1: you can provide a sort of pre-modern example.
2: I think a good example are letters where people talk from either worn areas or from... Um, places where there is a big plague and, and people are dropping like flies and when when you read letters written by merchants for example from that time they never focus on that they sort of mention it in a byline my child died yesterday or you know there's a lot of dead people but the prices for wheat are oh, this and this and this so there's this focus on marching on there's this focus on you know for our small community Jewish community to survive We need to concentrate on what makes us
1: prosperous, I think. Is that delusional?
2: It's a coping mechanism. But again, there's a delusional element to it, right? I mean, nowadays, we we would be completely overwhelmed, for example, by the death of a child or by the death of a close relative. But um, I think in the past, people were a bit more resilient, and they just, I mean, they were still sad. My great-grandmother had 18 children, nine of which died. She was very, very harsh and... uh, not very warm woman, but I think that's what happens, right, if you lose nine children.
1: We're still talking and hopefully having good luck. My guests are Esther Miriam Wagner and Robert Toombs. How do we make good luck? Can we make good luck? There's some medical evidence that positive thinking helps longevity. Here's Olivia Reams on the curiously titled Naked Scientist show Stripping Down STIs.
0: There are various factors that come into play. One is your immunity. It actually enhances your immunity. But also you are able to cope with stresses in life better. And uh, you have a tendency to reframe situations. So instead of seeing something as a threat, you will see it as a challenge instead.
1: You're both academics. And I'm just wondering in and I guess I could claim also to be an academic. So we have three academics around the table. That could be the start of another joke. Have Either of you experience, and I'm sure you have, in the academic world of someone making their own luck by the way they present themselves?
3: Well, I was hesitating because I was thinking of um, people taking legal action against me for defamation of character. (laughs) Because often if you say, well, you know, so-and-so's been very successful because of how they present themselves, the implication is that this is somehow false that it's um you know people tend to take you at your own estimation of yourself often and that you know we we can probably all think of people whose success we we perhaps feel is not wholly merited but is because of the way that they behave and so on now is is that luck I suppose it is I suppose it's a form of luck anyway and also envy I mean we all have that right ah yes
1: it really is the smaller the uh, case for concern the greater the arguments
2: That's absolutely true. You know, I hesitated because there are things like beauty bias that also, I think, influence whether someone is having a successful academic career. If you are... You know, nice to the eye, and if you have a good way of presenting yourself, you are much more likely to get invited to speak. If you are very sociable um, and people like you, f- just having you around as a networker, you're much more likely to succeed. So it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning that um, I think extrovert people have a bit of an edge, especially in academia, because it's such a performative profession. Um, I mean, there are always people who are brilliant writers and and, and they're acknowledged as such. But I think especially in modern academia, there's more of an emphasis on being a performer.
1: Is that fair, Robert? Because you've been an academic for a good number of decades. Have you noticed a difference in that sense in terms of, say, self-presentation from the early years uh, when you were a young aspiring academic to the man you are today?
3: Probably, at least. But then, you know, this is. there's the danger of my adopting this golden age illusion. Everything was better when you were young. I mean, it, there may be a difference between the humanities and the sciences. We might think of someone who's working away in a laboratory, someone who's perhaps a little bit on the, on the spectrum, who doesn't have many friends, but who happens to be a brilliant mathematician or a brilliant physicist, and one day they, they do something absolutely astonishing, which, which gets them the Nobel Prize. Well, in the humanities... Um, I suppose the the criteria for quality are much more subjective. We probably do have a pretty good idea of who is doing the really important work, but a lot of work we do depends on its its success on how people respond to it. You know, it's no good saying, well, you know, my dissertation on uh, on the Black Death is actually a lot better than the one that won this prize or that uh, sold a million copies because that criterion doesn't really count. If you're discovering cures for diseases, then whether they work or not does count. But I suppose, isn't it partly if this great
1: dissertation or this great piece of research, whether it's uh, science-based or in the humanities, was read at the right time by the right person, you know? And that comes down to
3: good luck. It may do. Tell me if I'm going too far astray here, but in the arts, it's often the case that people who are successful in their time are always forgotten by previous generations. And people who are often not recognized in their time often are. Like Bach
2: and his son, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, Johann Sebastian Bach was supposed to have been completely forgotten, whereas his son became extremely famous and uh, his music was played everywhere. And now we don't even, I don't even know the son's name.
1: (laughs) That's fascinating, though. There is something to that. You're saying part of it is the romance of rediscovering the lost genius, But why is it that some people who are sort of big figures in their time disappear in the midst of time? Is it because they're perhaps not as big as we think at that particular moment? Uh, Is there the element of jealousy or is it just bad luck?
2: I think it also has to do with whether you actually manage to capture the zeitgeist. If you can bottle the zeitgeist in your your work, in your art, in your music, in your writing, uh, I think then you become the essence but the zeitgeist is something that we can often only distill many, many decades later. So I think that's why sometimes you see these people emerging like Van Gogh.
3: I was going to say almost the opposite of Miriam, but I think maybe we're saying the same thing in and approaching it from an opposite direction. Because you were saying someone who bottles the zeitgeist becomes a sort of eternally interesting. I was thinking that people may be brilliant and successful in their own time, but then a generation later those issues, if you like, have passed away. And it's, it's those people who somehow are not bound by their own time who can have a, a very long-term influence or can be rediscovered later.
1: You won't be surprised if I bring up the religious dimension at this moment because, of course, there are some of these biblical figures who we know very little about but somehow the followers have kept up their, uh, their relevance. And even if they're bringing something of their own into it, these figures, they're contemporary. You know, whether it's Jesus or whether it's Moses mm-hmm. or whether it's Muhammad or, or whomever. Some of the, the Indian gods, of course, you know, there, there's a relevance there, even though we know so little about them. Why is
2: that? There's some sort of universal story to them, right? They create a universal paradigm that people keep on being able to relate to. And I think that's again sort of talk, it's exactly sort of corresponding to what you just said, Robert.
3: If we've sort of agreed that luck is partly about optimism, um, I suppose, is optimism another word for what we think of as hope in the religious sense? If you can continue to hope in the midst of adversity, that's to say you're retaining a resilience. These are the sort of words that we've talked about, in, which, are, which are in a sense are more, are more modern than, than hope. But is, is that what it is? It's hope. Religion can give you hope.
1: I think it is. I think there is that, that, that dimension because religion is, for the most part, providing an optimistic outlook. You know, there is some hope. Even having terrible suffering at the end of times, there is some hope.
2: You also transcend the individual story and you become more of, of part of the collective, right? And the collective will triumph.
1: That's right. Well, there's the individual and there's the community. That's absolutely right. But
3: where are you going with that, Robert? If a religion is to provide you with hope, it has to provide you with some, in, in some ways, in control of your own destiny. And it occurred to me that predestination, you know, the, the sort of the Protestant idea of predestination, gave you either invincible hope, because you could say, I'm one of the saved, or, of course, it gave you the, the absolute opposite. And there are, there are 17th century cases of people committing suicide because they couldn't stand the thought of not being one of the elect. So does a religion that gives you hope have to be one that does, in fact, enable you to control, to some extent, your, your eternal destiny?
1: I think predestination is an absolutely fascinating issue in this whole question on the role and the contribution of religion. Because for me personally, I'm a wired optimist. I relate to the the joke I told earlier. I see no other way than to have some kind of optimism. I remember speaking to Rome Williams about this. I was struggling many years ago. He was then Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, I said, I'm really sorry to come and see you about this because I'm struggling with eight staff and you've got 80 million Anglicans at your throat. But what advice do you have for those of us who are struggling at any particular moment? And he said something very profound, which is there's a certain point we just have to let it go. You have to put that worry,
3: as he put it, into the, into the palms of God. In a sense brings us back to, to, to the subject of luck. Because part of luck is being willing to give up control, to say, "Okay, uh, we'll try this. What a religious person would would consider putting it into the hands of God, an irreligious person might say putting it into the hands of chance or fate. So now the assumption is, or the implication, is that luck is God. It's a bit further than I was willing to go, (laughs) but uh, yes, I can absolutely see how one could take that view.
1: Miriam, in the medieval period, plenty of the the manuscripts that you would have uh, studied, they would be deemed as superstitious. There would be magic within them. Presumably, the author or the person who's receiving that document will benefit from some form of good luck.
2: I mean, there's definitely a lot of magic around, and a lot of religious people dabble in magic. I think there is, at least in the Abrahamic religions, there is still... The perception that a lucky person is someone who is blessed by God. Luck doesn't come from the devil. It's witchcraft. No, I don't think it's witchcraft. I mean, of course, if you're too lucky, (laughs) there may be periods where you may be accused of being a witch.
1: Doesn't the book of Job, doesn't it challenge that? You're down on your luck. All these terrible things are happening to you. But yet the implication of the story is Job still believed.
2: Yeah, but that's what makes his story so great. He doesn't lose faith even though he's so down on his luck, right? And that makes him the ultimate believer, someone who believes that, you know, in due course, there will be a reward given.
1: There's a reverent Dr. Martin Luther King quote that was given to me, which is the time is always right to do what is right. Is this just a way of saying you make your
3: own luck? Is luck connected with a moral choice? I think maybe not. At least much of what we associate with luck is maybe to do with selfish benefits. I think that doing what is right may well not bring you any reward. It may do the very opposite. Uh, and I guess often we have the idea of doing right as something that is not in our interest. Otherwise, it wouldn't really be doing right. It would just be doing what is in our interest. So I think probably luck is not is not a moral element. Or are we now going round in circles? Because you were suggesting a few minutes ago that luck may have a divine element, or at least it may be a way of approaching the divine. As we're drawing to a
1: close, I wonder if we can unpack this sort of personal and impersonal aspect of luck, which is something you've just really hinted at. There's something arbitrary about luck, but at the same time, I think we all think we deserve a little bit of luck, don't you?
2: Yes, no, absolutely. You know, in my very little spare time, I play board games. And I play online with other players all over the world. But it's really, really interesting because I also, I'm, you know, I'm an academic. I'm not a scientist, but I do study the, the curves of luck you can actually see. And there is something cyclical about luck. There's a universal spiral of luck that you can observe on these game sites. And, um, you know, when we're in the downward spiral, we feel the world is against us and, um, we feel unfairly treated. And then when actually the upwards spiral comes, we actually feel, oh, we're entitled to this. This is, this is what I should really be getting. This, is, of course, can be drawn much, much wider. You know, people who are having good luck, they're feeling that this is normality and this is something that they deserve, whereas then bad things happen to them. Then they feel that the world is stacked against them.
3: I used to play golf once, and golf is a game that brings this out very strongly. So if you hit a good shot, you think, now that's that's the real me. Then you hit 10 bad shots. You think I'm really really out of luck today. (laughs) Whereas the reality is you're not very good.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to resist quoting Homer Simpson. I've tried that positive thinking stuff. It didn't work for me. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Esther Miriam Wagner and Robert Toombs. And thanks to you for listening. And if you feel positive or lucky about this podcast, you might want to browse the Naked Reflections archive where you can find over 140 episodes of our show. And do check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests.